have one of the Pew Bibles. I'm going to be mainly looking this morning at Hosea 6, verses 4, verse 4 through Hosea, the end of Hosea chapter 7. Uh, but for context, I'll be reading from the beginning of chapter 6 for us this morning. So please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad. And the princes, by their treachery, they are all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For the hearts, with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is like a cake, not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove. Silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. 
for grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would make the reading of your word, the preaching of your word, an effectual means of convincing and converting lost sinners and of building up your church, holiness and righteousness through faith unto salvation. Father, we need you to do your work in us by your word and by your spirit. So we ask for your help and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Have any of you ever been to Yellowstone National Park? Any hands? I know the actors have probably multiple times. I've been a couple times. I went when I was a kid with my parents. uh, And then Lexi and I road tripped to Yellowstone National Park on our honeymoon. Now, the biggest draw to Yellowstone, of course, is uh, the geysers that you have and all the other hydrothermal features. You have these colorful pools with hot, steaming water and all these things that are so rare and hard to find in other places. If you've ever seen Old Faithful go up as a geyser, it's an amazing thing to see. But the other big draw to Yellowstone National Park are all of the wildlife that you can see there. People flock to Yellowstone to see grizzly bears and black bears, elk, bison, moose, and wolves. And I have seen all of those, and it's incredible. It's so much fun to see these massive animals and some animals that we don't have in Wisconsin. The interesting thing with these, though, is that although they are wonderful to look at, every single one of these animals can kill you. And it makes hiking at Yellowstone a little bit more nerve-wracking than going on a walk in Wisconsin. Uh, We're not going to go around a corner and find a mama grizzly bear here in Wisconsin. And black bears just aren't as frightening as grizzlies, if we're honest. Another interesting note, though, is that it's not the animals that I think we're most naturally afraid of that cause the most injuries in Yellowstone National Park. We're naturally afraid of wolves, but... There has only been one recorded wolf attack in the lower 48 in the last century. One in the last century in the lower 48. We're afraid of grizzly bears, and we should be, but Yellowstone only averages about one grizzly bear-related injury every year, which is still terrifying, and I don't want to be that one person on the receiving end of a grizzly bear attack. But by far, the animal that causes the most injuries every year in Yellowstone are bison. Okay, it seems that every month or so during the peak tourist season, another video shows up online of a tourist trying to take a selfie with a bison. They think that's a good idea. And that silly tourist ends up getting gored, trampled, and tossed up into the air and often seriously injured. It would be hilarious if it wasn't for the dangerous uh, and sometimes life-threatening injuries that people Uh, get when they are dealing with bison and they're being silly uh, and foolish around them. And the big issue seems to be 
that people are so completely oblivious to the danger that they're in right up until the moment that the bison starts starts stomping its hooves and lowering its head. They seem to have no idea that this is a life or death scenario for them. I'm amazed that at this point, with the amount of videos that are out online, that anybody can be that oblivious. That, for me, is the definition of being silly, senseless, oblivious, and blind. Yet, if we're honest, we are often the spiritual equivalent of the oblivious Yellowstone tourist. We're blissfully ignorant of sin's destructive nature right up to the point that our relationships are in tatters, our lives are shattered, and we realize that the relationship that we thought we had with God is really a relationship of judgment and discipline instead of blessing and peace. In Hebrews chapter 3, God gives an eye-opening warning to those in the church who think that they are okay with God. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That last phrase is so helpful, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin has this hardening effect on our hearts, this deceiving effect. Sin lies to you. It lies to you. It paints a flowery picture over a desolate landscape. It dresses up a skeleton in fancy clothes. It leaves you oblivious, like a senseless Yellowstone tourist, unaware of the danger until it is far too late. The big idea of this passage is very simple. Sin makes you oblivious. Sin makes you oblivious. We're going to see three uh, areas, three things that sin makes you oblivious to. Sin makes you oblivious to true religion, to sin's destruction, and to God's presence. Sin makes you oblivious to true religion, to sin's destruction, and to God's presence. So let's dive into that first main point. Sin makes you oblivious to true religion. Look with me to verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. God has just called them to repentance in those famous verses, verses 1 through 3, a call to return to the Lord, a call to know the Lord, to press on to know the Lord. But here we learn that their return, their knowledge, and their repentance is temporary. Their repentance is short-lived. There's a great contrast between verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, God is described as being as sure and consistent as the sunrise every dawn. Verse 4 continues that morning imagery for us, but it flips it to describe God's people. God is as sure and as consistent as the sunrise. God's people are as short-lived as the morning cloud and the dew. The sun rises, 
burns the fog and the dew away. God is consistent. They are transient. They are short-lived. And in verse 5, we see that it's this transient, temporary love and repentance that has led God to send his prophets. So we learn, why has God sent prophets? In verse 5, therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. This is a terrifying prospect. The God who by his word created the universe is now sending his word against his own people by the mouth of his prophets. And God's word here is again described like the sun in the morning. It burns up the fog and the dew. It reveals the true nature of the love and repentance of his people. And it shows that it's fake and it's temporary. And this far too often, I think, describes our spiritual lives. We're content with a repentance that looks like confessing our sins on a Sunday morning while diving right back into our regular habits of sin on Monday morning. A repentance will never be perfect in this life. We need to know that. But we should never be content with a false repentance that is in word only and is not matched by a pursuit of righteousness and godliness in our life. We should never be content with a temporary, transient, short-lived repentance, which is not a true repentance at all. And in verse 6, we learn what God does desire from them. So we've seen where they've gone wrong. Verse 6, God is saying, this is what I want from you. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God was simply not interested in their hollow religious rituals if they lacked love and if they lacked knowledge. Are you content with religious involvement without intimacy with God? You can enjoy the fellowship of community group. I love our community group. You can love and enjoy the liturgy on a Sunday morning, the beautiful songs, the hopefully sometimes engaging preaching, You can love the intellectual study of scripture. You can love all of those things without having a true desire for God himself. No true love for him and no intimate knowledge of God. And in our sin, we become convinced that we're fine with God, all the while missing the true heart of religion. Now, I'm saying true religion there. I do want... To clarify, the word religion has fallen upon hard times recently. It's often contrasted, I want Jesus, not religion. And if that is meant what we see here as hollow religion, then I agree wholeheartedly with that statement. But it is also a category in scripture that there is something such as true religion. And we're going to talk about this a lot in the book of Amos. And I don't want to say a whole lot about this. But these verses, as we see through the rest of chapter 6, remind us that a true religion involves love for God and love for one another. God makes a charge against Israel through his prophets, his covenant enforcers, a charge for breaking the covenant. In verse 7, it says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Now, there's some debate in the theological world about whether this is a reference to Adam the person or Adam the place. So is it referencing Adam in Genesis 3 breaking God's covenant 
Or is this a city in the northern kingdom named Adam that was in the territory of Gilead, which is referenced in 8? The argument for it being a place is that it says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant there. They dealt uh, faithlessly with me. So there's this reference to it being a place and the reference to Gilead. Uh, I'm not going to get into that or tell you uh, fully my opinion. And I feel like I can go both ways sometimes on that. But the big idea is that they've broken the covenant. Either way, the big idea is that their lack of love and knowledge of God has impacted their relationship with God and their outward actions toward one another. And the rest of chapter six paints a very grim picture of life in Israel, a picture of violence, of deception, of oppression. We see in verse nine that even the priests are getting in on this violence. It says in verse nine, as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. They murder and rob even from those that are traveling to worship God. The priests have got in on this. The leaders of God's people. But really, this is nothing other than disobedience to the two great commandments. We know the two greatest commandments, right? To love God and love our neighbor. And we have seen that they have failed to love their God. And in their violence and deception, they fail to love their neighbor. They are silly and they are oblivious. We see this in verse 2 of chapter 7. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. They are acting and living as if God does not see their sin. And if God does not, as if God does not care what they do, they miss that true religion is lived before the face of God. They think that they can maintain favor with God all the while betraying him and destroying one another. Do you confess to be a Christian while ignoring God and abusing your neighbor? Do you forget that every part of your life is to be lived before his face, that he knows and sees and cares? Let's pursue true religion. God desires steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So sin makes you oblivious to true religion. Now to our second point, sin makes you oblivious to sin's destruction. Sin makes you oblivious to sin's destruction. We're going to see this in verses 3 through 10 of chapter 7. And the emphasis on sin's destruction comes out through a bunch of different images all related to baking. So if you like baking, you like baking bread and cookies and cakes, then this is going to really resonate with you. If not, well, you know, pretend that you were a baker for just a moment. We're going to see a lot of imagery of baking. And in this imagery, we're going to see both internal destruction and external destruction in the nation of Israel. Now, when I say internal, I'm not referring to inside of me. I'm referring to inside of the community of God's people. So there's destruction between the people of God, Israelite towards Israelite, a nation destroying itself. And then there's also external destruction, which refers to Israel's relationship with the neighboring nations that dwell around them. So first, look with me 
to verses three through seven, as we look at all this baking imagery, we're going to see internal destruction within the community of God's people. In verses three through seven, by their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. I'll continue in just a second, but notice the wickedness of God's people. The kings are supposed to love good, to hate evil, to enforce righteousness in the nation. And what do the kings do? The kings approve of all of these things that are going on. The kings love their violence. They love their wickedness. Okay? So it's backwards. It continues. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen and none of them calls upon me. So this imagery right away can seem a little bit confusing. What is he referring to with this imagery of a, of a burning oven and kneading and leavening dough? It's a reference to the relationship in Israel between the kings and the subjects. So it's a picture again of internal destruction. The picture is of the people of Israel burning like a hot oven. Their anger smolders and it builds up towards their king until it turns into this raging inferno that devours up their rulers. And I think it's helpful to see here that the word for anger in the Hebrew literally means to become hot. It's this reference to your face growing red in the heat of anger. So it's very appropriate that their anger and their hatred towards their kings is described like a burning oven. They have become hot with anger. And the rulers, by their wickedness, are being prepared for their own destruction like bread that is being kneaded and leavened, soon to be thrown into the oven, and in this case, to be burned up by the heat. This picture is of a leavening of the plots rising up against the king that ends in his destruction. This historically describes the reality in the northern kingdom. It's happened over and over again. Again, one king leading to the next, assassination plots. There was a period, especially uh, near the end of the northern kingdom before they went off into exile, when many kings reigned for an incredibly short period of time before being killed. Two particularly short reigns were King Zechariah, not the prophet, the king, King Zechariah and Shalom. King Zechariah reigned for six months before being assassinated. He was the kingdom was taken over by Shalom, who took over the throne and reigned for one month, one month before being assassinated. And this happens over and over again. People being assassinated by their own children, people being assassinated by their generals. This turnover, constant, king after king, assassination after assassination. Israel was being destroyed from the inside out by their own sin and by their own wickedness. And this is a sobering picture of what it looks like when sin runs rampant in the hearts of God's people. We may not always, and I hopefully not often, we don't often physically assassinate one another. I hope that never happens in the life of Livingstone Church. But anger and hatred can boil in us. And when we do that, we destroy ourselves from the inside out. 
Paul gives us a helpful warning in Galatians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's an encouragement to the covenant community of God's people. You are called to love one another, not to bite and devour, not to consume one another. So we always need to keep a check on our hearts to make sure that we are being reconciled to our brothers and sisters, that we are not harboring an anger that smolders like a fire in an oven and ends up consuming our relationships, consuming our community. We need to make sure that we avoid this internal destruction that was experienced by the people of God. Then the baking imagery continues in verses 8 through 10, and this time it describes the external destruction of Israel. This time, Israel is described as a cake. And this is not like a, a birthday cake. This is like a flat loaf of, of something like bread. And it says in verses 8 through 10, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is like a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. There's a lot of different pieces to this imagery here. The first is that they are mixed with the nations, kind of like how you mix different dry ingredients in your KitchenAid when you were baking cookies, right? So they're mixed with all of these different nations. And the idea here is if you mix good ingredients with bad, the whole thing becomes bad. If Lexi is baking cookies and she's at the KitchenAid mixing things and I walk over with a tablespoon of of sand and I drop it into that flour mixture, I'm going to ruin that entire batch of cookies. No one wants to eat cookies where you're constantly biting on sand in your teeth, right? And the issue here isn't that they were trying to reach the nations or be a light to the nations. We remember when God calls Abraham, there's this promise that they will be a blessing to the nations. So that's not the problem here. The problem is that they are being influenced by the religions of these other nations. They're becoming tainted by the worship of Baal, by worship of gods that are not the true God. Instead of reaching the nations, they are the ones being impacted and affected by the nations. And we need to be aware of that too. Our desire should be to reach the world, not to become like the world. We don't want to be like cookies mixed with sand. So that's the first part, this mixing. Second, they're a cake or flat loaf not turned. So in the way that their ovens would work then with a fire underneath, there was a lot more heat coming from underneath. They didn't have convection ovens like we have today, where you have this nice even spread of heat through the oven. So if you left it and did not turn the cake that you put in, it would burn on one side and be raw on the other. And it would be, you would end with this unpalatable mess. So the idea is that they have become something that is unpalatable, unaccepted to, unacceptable to God, because they're burned on one side, they're raw on the other. They're not like a cake nicely cooked through. And then the third part, part of this imagery is that they are devoured by the nations. They're unpalatable to God, but these nations come and eat them up. They're destroyed by the very nations that we see that they run to for help. They run to Assyria. They run to Egypt. And in doing so, they are destroyed. But remember that the effect of this sin is ultimately that they become oblivious to their own destruction. They're being destroyed, but they don't even see it. Look at verse 9. Strangers devour his strength. 
and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him. Josh told me to not make a reference to him at that phrase. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. Israel completely misses the fact that they are being utterly destroyed by their sin, that they've become weak and frail. They're completely oblivious. Their own sinfulness has caused them to be blissfully ignorant to the fact that they're being destroyed from within and from without. This is a massive truth for Christians to understand. Sin tells you it is harmless right before eating you alive. Sin tells you that it's harmless right before eating you alive. It's like the big bad wolf in Little Red Riding Hood. Sin dresses up like your grandma and then bears its teeth, tells you it's harmless, and then devours you. So sin makes you oblivious to true religion, to sin's destruction. And then lastly, and most importantly, we'll see that sin makes you oblivious to God's presence. Sin makes you oblivious to God's presence. This is a recurring theme that we see through chapter 7. Verse 2, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. They don't see and acknowledge that God knows their sinfulness. Verse 7, all their kings have fallen and none of them calls upon me. They know they're being destroyed in some ways, right? Or at least they should know. Their kings are falling. But who do, not, who do they not turn to? They do not turn to the Lord. Verse 10, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. They should see this. It's right in front of them. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. In all their turmoil, they forget the Lord their God. So this leads to a second major piece of imagery. So first we had baking imagery, and now we have bird imagery, particularly doves and dove hunting. So verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. Why are they silly and senseless? Because they run to Egypt. They run to Assyria for help instead of calling out to God. They want deliverance, but they run to the very nations that are destroying them. And all of that, again, they ignore God. Their biggest problem is not ultimately the nations. Their biggest problem is the judgment of God. And God promises to bring them down like hunted birds. And God is a better bird hunter than I am. I've gone duck hunting twice this fall. And I have killed zero ducks. Okay? And I even went dove hunting once this fall. Shot zero doves. But God here is described as a hunter. And God is a good hunter. He will bring them down like hunted birds. They're oblivious to the fact that God is the one that is bringing their troubles upon them because of their sin. Then the language strengthens with the repetition of the phrase against me all through verses 13 through 16. Look at those verses. Notice how often he repeats that phrase against me. They're not only rebellious. We see, or they're not only oblivious. We see that they are rebellious. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. 
They do not cry to me from the heart, but wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. To use R.C. Sproul's language here, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is far more than just destructive. Sin does far more than just bringing brokenness into your life. Sin is treachery. Sin is rebellion against the king of the universe. The very king who made you, the king who provides for you. And verse 15 hits this home. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. God is the one who gave them their strength, and yet they use that strength to rebel against God. The sort of rebellion is like someone coming up to you and giving you $10,000. And you go and spend that $10,000 to hire an assassin to kill the person that just gave you $10,000. Right? We see how backward that would be, right? We see that it's spitting in the face of that generosity. God has strengthened their arms. God has been the one that has provided, yet they devise evil against him. Do we see how backward sin is? And then all of this comes to verse 16. Hosea 6, 1 through 3, those beautiful verses, an incredible call to return to the Lord, tied to this promise that God would revive them. Come, right? Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. But then look at the beginning of verse 16. They return. Do they return to the Lord? They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. They return, but they do not return to God. They run again and again to other nations and to other gods. And the final consequence of this sin, their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. The call for us is to truly return to the Lord to truly press on to know the Lord and to run as far and as fast as we can away from sin's destruction. This passage is a really necessary warning for us. This is one of the only passages in the, in the whole book of Hosea, what I've preached through four through the end of seven, that has no positive turn. This chunk, this literary piece of, of, of the passage in Hosea has no promises of the Lord redeeming them, of the Lord chasing down his wayward bride. This is a heavy passage, but we don't shy away from these hard passages about sin and judgment. But we also have to ask another question. In the middle of all of this bad news in this passage, all this heavy stuff, all of this talk about sin, is there any good news in this passage? Is there any good news that we can find? Well, the good news in this passage is not stated outrightly for us, but it is there. It's sitting there right in the background of this entire passage. Sin might make us oblivious, but let's not miss the good news that's right in front of our noses in this passage. So the good news is sitting there right in a number of statements that show that the heart of God is overflowing with love and mercy and a desire to redeem his people. Chapter 7, verse 13. 
I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. 7.10, the pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. Notice the reference there, to the Lord their God. Chapter 6, verse 11 through 7.1, when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. And then I think the best of all of these, chapter 6, verse 4, the first, first verse of our passage today, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Do you see the heart of God in that verse? And by the work of the Holy Spirit, we come to our senses and we become aware of the deception and destruction of sin. We might wonder if a just and holy God could ever love us. Yet through this passage, we catch glimpses that lying in the background of this entire text is a God who not only shows displeasure towards sin and discipline, but a God whose heart is ready and able to accept his people back to himself. We see a God who is grieved. He's grieved by the sin of his people. What am I to do with you? What am I to do with you? A God whose heart is to reconcile his people to himself as a husband, welcoming home a wayward wife. And that question of the Lord, what shall I do with you? Sets up a vital question for us. What is God to do with us? How can a just God show mercy towards rebellious sinners? How can we reconcile God's heart of mercy and the necessity of judgment against sin? The answer is, and the answer must be, the cross of Jesus Christ. The Father loved his wayward children by sending his son to bear the judgment for our sins so that we might be the recipients of his mercy. The invitation for you is to return to the Lord. Yes, he has torn, but in Christ, the one who was wounded for us, he will heal. Yes, he has struck down, but in Christ, he will bind us up. Our love is often so fickle and so temporary, but God's steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning like the rising of the sun. Great is his faithfulness. Our love is like mist and dew that disappears in the bright light of the morning. His steadfast love in Christ is like the sun which rises and shines upon his creation. So return to the Lord. Our God is merciful and our God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we are often so oblivious to our sin, so silly and senseless. We need your help. We need you to be the one that opens up blind eyes and takes hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. God, we ask that you would work in us, that we would see our sin and not be deceived by it, 
And that in recognition of our sin, we would run to you. We would flee our sin and sprint with all of our might towards Christ. Knowing your great mercy and your great love. And your heart which longs to reconcile us to yourself and your son. Thank you for the good news of the gospel in the midst of the bad news of our sin. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. We come to this table this morning to remember the death of Christ in our place. We remember his body, which was given for us, his blood, which was shed for us on the cross, his blood that gives us peace with God. In so doing, we remember the love of God made manifest to lowly and rebellious sinners. We remember that our God loved us and sent his son so that we might live through him. That he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath-bearing sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And we come to this meal to fellowship in love with our God and with our Savior Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit and to come and be fed by him, to have our faith nourished for the Christian life, However, we also see that there is a warning in 1 Corinthians 11, a warning of judgment for those who do not eat this meal or drink of the cup in a worthy manner. So before you come forward, we would invite you to take time, to take a moment to examine yourself. Take time in prayer to go before our God, to see if you have true faith in Jesus Christ, if you have repentance, love, and a new obedience. And if these do not mark you this morning, then we would ask that you remain in your seats during this time. We would love to talk about the gospel more with you and what Christ has done on your behalf. You do not have to be a member of Livingstone, a member of the PCA, or even a Presbyterian to come to this table. This table belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so all those who are baptized Christians who are in good standing with the gospel preaching church are invited to come forward at this time. But also know that as you examine yourselves, as you look at your hearts, that you are going to see sin. You're going to see ways that you have been deceived by sin. You will see your wickedness, your weakness, and the destruction that sin has brought.
You'll see the imperfections in your faith and the imperfections in your repentance. And in that, I would say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Know that he gave us this meal, not to be for those who are perfect, but to strengthen the weak and those who look to Jesus in faith. So those who are helping serving uh, can come forward this morning. And let, us, let me pray for this meal. A gracious Father, the one who has called us to yourself and called us now to this table, the table of our Savior, to show us the death of Jesus Christ and to receive the gift of life. Enable us to come this morning with earnest and true faith and with a kindled devotion, with hearts that are true, that are true in religion, hearts that long for steadfast love and a knowledge of you, that this would not be a time of hollow ritual, but a time of sweet fellowship with you, a time for our hearts to be fed. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.